Support comes from Adelaide Interiors. Their design team can expertly manage every detail of your renovation and remodeling project from start to finish. From bathrooms to kitchens, appliances, cabinets, countertops, flooring, and coverings. More at Adelaide.com. Many times in the South, we eat okra and tomatoes, put some onion in. But the uh, Africans also use the uh, seeds of the okra plant. They would use that, uh, brown those, and use it as a coffee substitute. I'm Dalia Colon, and this is The Zest. Citrus, seafood, Spanish flavor, and southern charm. The Zest celebrates cuisine and community in the Sunshine State. Here on the pod, we love to explore the foodways of Floridians past and present, including the people who weren't always treated like people. Today, we're learning about the foodways of the enslaved. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This week, we're diving deep into the food customs of enslaved workers who labored in the American South, including, yes, Florida's plantations, where they grew cotton, tobacco, sugar, and other cash crops. Many of their culinary traditions are alive and well today, although they rarely get the credit. I recently chatted about this with Martha Beretta, Ph.D. She's the executive director of Blanchard House Museum of African American History and Culture in Punta Gorda. The museum, unfortunately, suffered damage from Hurricane Ian and was closed for repairs at the time of our recording. For updates, visit BlanchardHouseMuseum.org. Dr. Beretta chatted about so many interesting things, including what enslaved Africans ate during the months-long voyage to the New World known as the Middle Passage. She also explains how enslaved people supplemented their meager rations of cornmeal, molasses, fatback, and salt pork. She dives into the origins of Hoppin' John, barbecue, gumbo, and other foods commonly eaten in the South. And she talks about the paradoxes of being a chef enslaved to presidents like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. Dr. Beretta begins our conversation by giving some background on the Blanchard House Museum. We have a permanent exhibit uh, which looks at the very first stages of African Americans uh, coming to Ponta Gorda. In fact, of the first 15 men, seven were African-American. And I'm proud to say one of those men was my great uncle, Dan Smith, who was very important uh, in the development of Ponta Gorda. We move from there to an exhibit that looks at our community, the values that we held, our work life, something called Down the Street, which was our business district. And this year we've had the Okoe exhibit up and we always have a changing exhibit. So for the last couple of years, our exhibit has been on the African influence on American healthcare. So this time we are starting with Florida History 101. And one of the things that's very important for people to know is that African-American history in Florida did not start with slavery. It started with conquistadors. I know that a lot of your research has centered around food. It's hard to talk about history and culture. <laughs> without talking about food. And and there are some topics 
that we settled on today, but I know there's much more people can learn about at the museum. For people who don't know what the Middle Passage is, can you explain the Middle Passage and some of the foods that made their way to Florida via the Middle Passage? The Middle Passage was that three to six month voyage that the enslaved Africans took. Uh, there are three parts of it. Uh, first of all, from the Europeans, they would take certain um, materials to Africa. Then the uh, enslaved people would be captured, brought to the New World. And then from there, um, materials and whatnot from the New World would be taken back to Europe. One of the things that the captors discovered was that more of the um, enslaved people would survive if they did have food that they were accustomed to. So on the voyages, uh, they would bring rice, uh, the cassava root, they would take that, make flour from it, the manioc flour, all kinds of cereal, cow peas, which are black-eyed peas, pigeon peas, yams, which are different than sweet potatoes, plantains, and greens, and beans. So what they would do would take, uh, you know, just the whole bunch of that, add some palm oil to it, and twice a day, these were the meals that those that were enslaved ate. We've covered a little bit of this with a previous guest, Dr. Frederick Douglass Opie, and it's interesting to hear you reiterate that, especially because rice dishes are so prevalent in the American South and especially in Florida. And that wouldn't be possible without the expertise of the enslaved people who knew how to cultivate them. Well, one of the things, since you mentioned the rice, that rice was cultivated 1500 BC in Africa. And 43% of the people that were enslaved or brought to South Carolina who knew how to produce rice came from that area, uh, Sierra Leone. So rice has been produced uh, in Africa for centuries. Oh, wow. Let's talk about some of the foods that the enslaved people ate when they arrived in the Americas. First of all, we have to understand that based upon your family size, based upon the type of work you did, you received rations. Now, these rations are very slim. A peck of cornmeal, some molasses, some fat back, some salt pork. Uh, the unwanted parts of the pig, like the intestines of the jaw, maul, or the feet. So that's basically, that's what they started out with. Some masters did allow them to hunt and fish, which meant that they could, of course, uh, supplement that. The healers in the communities had to always encourage the enslaved families to have gardens. That was the only way that they were able to get any kind of nutrition. So they would. They planted their gardens uh, many times with greens and other vegetables so that they can have an almost complete diet. But basically, those four things that I mentioned, cornmeal, molasses, fatback, and salt pork, that was what the enslaved were given to eat. Now, Cornmeal. How many different ways do you think you can make cornmeal and it can be creative? Well, I I absolutely have to give it to the ancestors because those women knew how to take cornmeal. 
they may, and I think a lot of us have heard of this, uh, whole cakes or ash cakes where you put your cornmeal in some hot water and then you put it on the hoe or put it on the yeah, something near the fireplace and you could make ash cakes. That was something they ate. Also, uh, you could make dumplings out of that cornmeal. Sometimes you put those in water and put them in your greens. Or if you want to fry them, you could make hush puppies. Crackling bread, which I enjoyed as a child in Virginia, you would put pork crackling, you know, the crispy pieces of, of, of uh, fat, of the pork, and you make crackling bread. And then there was something called kush that was a sweet fried cornmeal cake. So this cornmeal, while it was just given to these women, they were able to do all kinds of great things with simply cornmeal. Grits, of course, uh, that came from the Indian corn, the Harmony, they ate that. They made a ginger cake. And I think all of us have heard about the Hoppin' John, the black-eyed peas and, and rice, which is, of course, a West African dish. Now, the primary meat that the enslaved ate in, the, in their cabins was pork. Uh, rarely eaten, however, in uh, many parts of Africa because of the Muslim influence. So what they would do, uh, they, you know, they just had the, the pork ends, you know, what the master didn't want. They would smoke it or salt it, and they would use it to season their beans and greens. And through generations, that is what African-Americans have done. We've used uh, many times, uh, we would have a basically a meatless meal, but it would be seasoned with some type of pork neck bones, or if you had a ham hock or whatever. So the most famous pork recipes that we hear about are the ham hocks, the smoked ham hocks. The women came up with pickled pig's feet, barbecued ribs that came from the cabin, and of course, intestines, chitterlings or chitlins, whatever you call them, that came also. And say more about barbecue. Well, the way that the enslaved cooked you know, from Africa, when they did roast meat, they would put it on an open spit and then they would add sauce to it. And so that's what they did uh, here. They, that's where our barbecue came from, that roasting of meat and having a sauce that went along with it. Now, one of the things we may not have heard about is something called juba. Okay, the cooks in the, the big house, what they would do would be to collect all of the leftovers. And so the cooks would put it all together, and on a Saturday or Sunday, um, they could have that, or they could take it out to the fields for the farmhands, you know, the workers to eat. But juba is that food that was left over from the master. So is juba a specific dish, like a, a stew, or is it just the concept of gathering all the leftovers? Just gathering all the leftovers. Juba. I, mm-hmm. I eat juba all the time and didn't know it. <laughs> That's what it is, gathering the leftovers. Wow. Okay, so the big house would be where the master, quote unquote, lived. Is there anything else uh, interesting about cooking in the big house? Yes. First of all, you know, that's how the African crops were introduced and the ways of cooking in Africa were introduced in the big house. Like, as I said before, the deep fat frying, that's what was introduced, barbecuing. 
And it was really uh, an honor. Uh, that was a, a special, although it was a very hard job, but to be able to to cook in the big house, which meant, you know, you got a little bit to taste the mother food, that kind of thing. But some of the traditional foods um, that were served, that were brought from Africa and with having the African cooks, and it's the African word for it is gumbo, okra. Okra was introduced. Now when we think about the gumbo, we think about putting some shrimp or chicken in with it, with the okra. Uh, many times in the South, we eat okra and tomatoes, put some onion in. But the uh, Africans also use with the uh, seeds of the okra plant, they would use that, uh, brown those, and use it as a coffee substitute. The staple diet for Africans were bush greens. Okay, so when those were brought here and then planted here, um, they would simmer them with some oil or hot peppers were always used. Callaloo, which we find from the taro plant in the West Indies, the greens were part of our diet. That was a very healthy part of the African diet. Now, we did adapt to sweet potatoes and we even called them yams. However, sweet potatoes and yams are different. You know, yams can be white or yellow or different sizes. And in many of the uh, African religions, uh, they have some religious uh, significance. But we did adapt to those. It was very much like what we'd eaten, you know, on the continent. Black-eyed peas, which were first called cow peas, that was part of what we brought to the big house. All kinds of uh, beans and peas since 901 AD, Africans were cultivating these. Another very interesting one were the Benny seeds or sesame seeds. And sesame seeds, you know, would be put in sauces and pudding. And Thomas Jefferson liked them so much that he would use them for his salad dressing rather than the olive oil. Something called Guinea squash. Uh, this is eggplant. That was brought over and brought to the big house. I think all of us have had a cola drink. Cola nuts, of course, came from uh, the continent. And they were used in several ways. One of the things that they did on that three to six month voyage was sometimes they were used to suppress hunger and thirst. Also, the water would become very stagnated on those trips. And so they would add a little bit of this cola nut, you know, which has the caffeine in it. I think we usually, we don't hear this used often, but goober. Have you heard the term goober nut? No. Is there a candy called goober or did I make that up? There might be, but a goober is our peanut. Those were, that, those were goober nuts, our ground nuts. Washington and uh, Thomas Jefferson called them penders. But we know you can do a lot with those peanuts. You can, if you're Southern, you probably will enjoy some nice boiled peanuts with some hot pepper in them. Or you can make peanut pie or peanut soup. And of course, watermelon came from Africa. It started to be stigmatized, but it uh, was one of the fruits, tamarind and dates and figs. We ate all of those things there. All of those plants grew there. And again, as I said, the rice was something that the enslaved knew how to cultivate. The Europeans did not know how to do that. That's why it's very interesting when we think of the people who came and some people consider them just to be laborers. They weren't just laborers. They were individuals who knew how to cultivate 
specific types of plants. So they should be getting credit for that. And especially in South Carolina with the rice. I mean, that was the economic boom for South Carolina. That Carolina gold, that was very important. It, you know, that's where the wealth came from. And without those strategies, techniques for growing that, uh, that would not have happened. So when we think of, you think of the field hands, they're not just field hands. They are people who had knowledge, real knowledge of how to grow specific types of plants. Support comes from Adelaide Interiors. Their design team can expertly manage every detail of your renovation and remodeling project from start to finish. From bathrooms to kitchens, appliances, cabinets, countertops, flooring, and coverings. More at Adelaide.com. You mentioned Thomas Jefferson. Can you talk more about the people who cooked for him? Because, you know, if you've seen maybe the documentary High on the Hog or some of these other resources where they they tell how these people were educated in France to mm-hmm. perfect some of their techniques. So we talked about cooking in the big house, but I think the biggest house is the White House. <laughs> what do we know about the chefs to the president? We know that the enslaved were who carried on the the president of the White House kitchen. We know that if you were looking to buy a person, an enslaved person, that they were appraised at a higher value. But also, there's not a lot that we talk about. It's kind of an untold, untaught history. But we at the Blanchard House decided we'd pull it up. But let's start with George Washington. Um, there was an, an older woman Her name was Old Doll, and her daughter, Lucy, worked with her. And she trained the very spectacular cook, Hercules. Hercules was the main chef for the Philadelphia White House of George Washington. He lived as much as you can as an enslaved person. He lived a pretty privileged life. It is understood that he had this spectacular wardrobe that he had a coat with a velvet collar and he wore you know, really fancy knee breeches, had silver buckets on his shoes. And he made a little money on the side because he would make about $200 a year for selling what was called slop, which was uh, food from the kitchen that was left over. Now, George Washington, he was the one who established the Fugitive Slave Act in 1793. Now, Hercules was in Philadelphia. Philadelphia was the place to be, that it had many, many free Africans there, and people had a real free life there. So you had Hercules, he was with these people socializing, and you know he was a really special person. But George Washington was very clever, because the uh, what the law said was that if an enslaved person stayed there, for six months, if they were there for six months, then they would become free. So what George Washington would do would be to rotate his enslaved so that they would not become free. Of course, then he rotated Hercules. 
But Hercules had been with all these free blacks and he had to plan his time. So eventually, on George Washington's birthday, February 22nd, 1797, Hercules did escape. He escaped, spent some time in Philadelphia. Then he went on, as what we know, he went on to Europe. So George Washington really did want to, you know, keep him and and have these little tricks to be able to keep the enslaved. Now, Thomas Jefferson, who loved all things African. (laughs) uh, (laughs) All things. All things African. We've heard of James Hemings, and he was the sister of the very, you know, well-known Sally Hemings. So James Hemings was the brother of Sally Hemings, who had a an intimate relationship with Thomas Jefferson. Yes. Okay. James Hemings was her brother, and he was taken to Paris. Uh, he's a very well-known chef. He he was trained by the best French chefs. He learned uh, French language. He learned the cooking. He excelled in the language, and he was just really. Uh, an excellent cook, and in many of the kinds of recipes that he brought back, like we make the pasta, the, the macaroni and cheese kind of thing, you know. But he's the one who started using the cream with the pastas, that kind of thing. Now, his is kind of a sad story, though. Um, th- these men who live this life, I mean, you got this certain part of freedom, but you're still enslaved. Right. So while they were in France learning these techniques, they were free. Yes. But they had to come back to America to make the mac and cheese where they were not. Right. And so they were caught between these two worlds. And James Hemings' story, uh, I have to say Hercules did okay. He he was able to get out and went to Europe and, and did fine. But poor James Hemings, he did want to be free. So he negotiated with Jefferson, that he would train his brother, Peter, you know, to be the chef. And he, you know, went back to, he was in Philadelphia too. That, that was the place to be. But uh, as, a, as a free man, he, he had trouble finding work. He had to come back and work for Jefferson, and then he left again. So as an enslaved chef, he did well, but something didn't work out when he wanted to be a free chef. So his story was sad. As we come closer, Lyndon Johnson also had a female chef, Zephyr Wright, from 1942 to 1969. And one of the things that Johnson noticed, I guess, when they were traveling, is that she couldn't sleep. They'd have sleep in the car. They couldn't go into the hotels. So that did have some impact on, on Lyndon Johnson. And when he was signing all of the bills that he signed. Oh, yeah. Um, the Civil Rights Act, yeah, 1964, but, Voting Rights Act, 1965. He thought of Mrs. Zephyr Wright was wow. able to take a look at those because he understood what she had gone through. She was his chef and she did have some impact on him. The thing that I guess we have to think about is we have all these nice Southern cookbooks. But as I said before, the recipes were passed orally. You know, you could stand there and observe, or you they were passed orally. And, and a lot of it, uh, if you talk to a Gullah person, has to do with the love 
that was put into it. You know, it wasn't precise seasoning here and there. It was the tasting and the love that was put into it. So you find a lot of Southern cookbooks, but the recipes that you find there were probably the foods that were made by the enslaved in their homes. So uh, they don't get the credit, but uh, you look at those recipes, they are probably the recipes of the enslaved. Mm -hmm. I could talk to you all day. You've taken us through hundreds of years of history. But as we start to wrap up, I want to know where we can learn more. I know you put on a program called Her Story Living History. Tell me a little bit about that. I guess I, because my, my grandmother was a very powerful woman, I'm interested in self-empowered African and African-American women. And I do a program called Her Story, in, in which I do a, a living history performance. And uh, I, one is a powerful doctor in women when I am Pearl, the midwife. And when I do that program, it's rather fascinating for women because I talk about three types of herbs that the enslaved uh, midwives and granny doctors used. Some were for to prevent illness. That's why those women had gardens. Some were to cure illnesses. And some were to prevent childbirth. They did not want to breed as after 1808, the masters wanted these women to produce and reproduce. So that's rather one I really enjoy doing. Uh, it, it's good for libraries or museums or cultural organizations. So that's one that I do. I do another one that I am fascinated by the numbers racket. And especially women who were profound in the numbers racket. Because the numbers racket, I know it was illegal. But what those people did for our communities was outstanding in that a numbers man or numbers woman, and the, what I do is about a, a numbers woman, Miss Josephine is her name, uh, they gave to the community. If somebody had a, a, a person who died, this numbers person could help them put them you know, for the funeral. The businesses, remember the banks did not lend money to African and African descended people. So the numbers man, they provided amazing. And in my, my own hometown, in the 1920s, uh, a man named Mr. Samuel came and everybody was talking about it. My mother, even she was a little girl, talked about it. He came to Ponce Gorda with $80,000. But guess what? He didn't use it just for himself. He built housing, grocery stores. He developed our community. And then I do one called Reflections of a Color Girl. And I am the color girl that has those reflections. And um, what I do is talk about the experiences I had as a colored girl. But more important, I talk about the lessons I learned as a colored girl. During that time of Jim Crow, yes, those are very hard times. But we Africans were many times at our very best because we were left alone to build our communities. I do talk about the lessons I learned. So those are three programs that I do present when I do Living History. Well, this colored girl learned a lot from you today, but thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate all your expertise. 
Martha Beretta, Ph.D., is executive director of the Blanchard House Museum of African American History and Culture in Punta Gorda. She's also the headliner for the 2023 Tampa Bay Collard Green Festival in St. Petersburg. On Friday, February 17th, she'll take part in the Collards After Dark conversation moderated by yours truly. You can also catch Dr. Beretta at the festival's main event on Saturday, February 18th. Get all the information about the Tampa Bay Collard Green Festival at tbcgf.org. And if you're in the mood to cook up some collard greens, check out dietitian and nutritionist Wendy Wesley's recipe for pancake collards on our website, thezestpodcast.com. I'm Dalia Cologne. I produce The Zest with Andrew Lucas and Chandler Balcom. The Zest is a production of WUSF Public Media, copyright 2023, part of the NPR Network.